Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hello, hello. The scripture reading for today is from chapter, or Jonah chapter 4. This is God's word. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Famous New York Mayor Ed Koch used to say to the people of New York City, if you agree with six out of the ten things that, that I say, you should vote for me. If you agree with ten out of the ten things I say, you should have your head examined. I've often wondered about that kind of number when it comes to pastors and churches and the number that we would want. My experience is we want closer to ten out of ten things that we agree on. Because if we hear a pastor something, say something that maybe we disagree, then we start wondering, is there a church out there that's better for me? Or what is this pastor's secret agenda that I don't know? Or is this even a false prophet? You know, like is there, maybe I should be looking around at another church where I, I align with everything. I uh, do think it's really important for us to have clarity and similarity on the essentials of our faith. And I do think that there's Uh, damaging theology and misuses of power that should be clear indications for us to leave. But I find that for communities where there's space and grace for us to disagree, that it's it's one of the greatest gifts that we can have for one another, especially when it comes to the tricky, complicated social issues of our days. Um, Hopefully, the vine is a place uh, where we know that we are all in formation. We're all learning. We're all growing, including this flawed, incomplete person that has the honor and the weight of sharing God's word Sunday after Sunday. Uh, That's one of the gifts of being a third-way community, is to provide space for us to learn from and with each other. I say this in part because today we're going to tread into some difficult territory. I slated this fourth sermon to talk about what I perceive as happening in Jonah 4, which is this conversation between Jonah and God around a very difficult subject around how God treats our enemies. This prophet is filled with hatred and bitterness, and it's partially for good reason. The Syrian people, of which the Ninevites are a part of, the Syrian people at one point came to Israel 
violently and viciously murdered Israelis, uh, took some of them captive, went back over into their land, and in response, Israel learned to hate their neighbor. Thus, the trickiness of our moment today. I don't know how to talk about Jonah chapter 4 without acknowledging the backdrop of the tragic events of what's happened in Israel and Gaza. I think of being completely tone deaf and a bit irresponsible, to be honest. And like many of you, I have friends that are living in that region who I visited with, I talked with, and one of the things that I've realized is this is one of the most layered and complicated situations that I have experienced. Because not only are we uh, dealing with different nations, but there's such history, there's ethnic divisions, there's the long-standing treaties and wars that have taken place, there's two different religions, there is uh, also this backdrop of an uptick of Islamophobia and anti-Semitic ideology that's spreading even in our own nation. This is not a simple situation. And nine months ago, when we decided to study Jonah, and we penciled this fourth chapter to be around uh, loving our enemy, little did we know the moment that we'd be in today. But I find myself repeating the psalmist's words of gratitude. Thank you, God, that your word can be a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. That God's word is a gift to teach us how to navigate really complicated situations in a world full of confusion and chaos and sorrow that we have God's word to lead us and how to be faithful and responsible. So today we're going to walk through Jonah 4 and we're going to do it candidly and honestly, trusting that God still wants to shepherd God's people. And one of the ways that God does that is through God's word. As we look back at Jonah, I think it's helpful for us to see the structure that whoever wrote uh, Jonah devised. And the structure is this. In chapters 1 and 3, they're very similar. In chapters 2 and 4, are very similar. Chapters 1 and 3 is around Jonah's interaction with non-Jewish people, these foreigners. So in chapter 1, it was Jonah's interaction with these non-Jewish sailors. And in chapter 3, it was Jonah's interaction with the people of Nineveh. And although these individuals are outsiders, religiously other, and ethnically other, they display this humility and a longing to turn to God once again. Chapters 2 and 4 are these interactions between Jonah and God. In chapter 2, we have this song or this poem that Jonah devised in the, in the womb of the fish. And in chapter 4, we find this sacred griping session between Jonah and God. And so we find out finally, finally in Jonah chapter 4, we finally find out the reason why Jonah is so determined to run from God and get away from Nineveh. After God relents, after God changes God's mind in chapter 3, Jonah begins to gripe. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, all the way back over there, right? That, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. We finally know, very clearly, this is the reason why Jonah ran west, is that Jonah wanted nothing to do with God, seeing God's mercy given to people who should only receive God's judgment. Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. For Jonah, Jonah had this unspoken rule, a contract with God that I will be your mouthpiece, I will speak for you, uh, for those who deserve your kindness, 
And that does not include that land-grabbing, violent, oppressive, kidnapping, godless people of Nineveh. They should have nothing for your judgment. So I will go and I'll speak on that behalf, but not the other. And Jonah, he actually sees these characteristics of God that the people of Israel, they relish in. And here, it has this bitter taste to him. These are the characteristics we find in verse 2, that God is gracious, that God is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. This was almost a creed for the Jewish community. This was something that they would repeat often as they would talk about Yahweh, the living God. These collection, this collection of attributes are scattered throughout the Old Testament. What we see, though, here is that these characteristics is what Jonah is actually fearing. Jonah wanted God's benefits to be within the banner of the Jewish community, to be our God, to show us grace, to show us compassion, a God who is abounding in ethnic love. But as Paul would say many years down the road in the book of Romans, God shows no favoritism. God's love and mercy and compassion is not bound by territorial lines or ethnic divisions. As Jesus said, I have come for anyone who knows that they are sick and are in need of a doctor. This is what Jonah fears them. This is what I call the underbelly of God's mercy, the part of God's mercy which is hard for us to take when it extends to the people whom we despise. And Jonah is filled with such bitterness and anger. So let's just take a moment and be honest. We all have enemies. Maybe they're not like in that context. Perhaps it's not a nation out there, but we all have enemies. We all have people we hold in contempt, people that we would not mind just magically disappearing. I don't want them to hurt. I just, if they would just disappear, you know, like people who speak on their phones with the speaker function in public, I mean, just disappear, you know? Or maybe there's an island they all could go to and just talk loudly with each other, right? A couple of weeks ago, our staff was talking about this, and we were kind of talking about our struggle with uh, uh, reading and engaging with Jonah because uh, we don't have enemies. But then I asked the question, all right, so, but are there people whom we just hold bitterness towards? And we all kind of didn't make eye contact for a little bit, right? Because we know we have that kind of enemy. It might be an emotional enemy uh, that we have. We have just bitterness that we hold on to. Uh, there are people in this world where we just can't let go of our bitterness. And it's kind of like a pilot light within a stove. Though it's not obvious and it's not apparent, it burns deeply within us and it's ready to set fire at any moment. Quite often, we take that bitterness bitterness, and we try to baptize it. And this is where it gets tricky as people of God, is that we take our bitterness, we take our anger, and if we are left to our own devices, we will try to baptize it. We will weaponize the Bible, we'll weaponize Christian vernacular and language to go against these people, all with the veneer of being religiously faithful, of standing against the world maybe, just like Jonah did, right? We see this, that he took his religious bitterness and he almost treated it like a virtue. In the book, Bird by Bird, Anne Lamott shares a quote from a friend of hers. And this is her quote. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. It's like this reversal of how creation happened, that we were created in God's, God's image. And in many ways, if we're left to our devices, we will create God in, ours, in our image. And what 
she is saying is, the expression of that is when we, God hates all the same people that I do. What's frustrating to Jonah is God is not sharing the hatred that he has baptized, that he is called good. We have to be so careful not to create a religious worldview where God's mercy belongs to us and not the people over there. And that can be on any sort of social issue. It could be on any sort of tribalism that we have in our day that's a little bit more cloaked and ambiguous. What the story of Jonah shares again and again is prophetic power, I believe, is that God's mercy often goes beyond our desires. The book of Jonah is warning this, to be careful when you have made peace with your hatred, because it will come at a cost. And what is its cost? Well, we see it in how Jonah responds. Verse 3, now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than to see God love his enemy. Jonah doesn't want to exist in a world where there's equal sitting at the table of God's mercy and grace between us and them. He wants out. I like how the poet Thomas Carlyle, he summarized this moment in a poem. I love the title of this poem. It's called Tantrum. <laughs> and this is the poem. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. In response to this obstinate anger that Jonah has in this moment, this willingness just to resign from life. For the first time in this book, God actually gives voice. Not yet in Jonah have we heard from God. We have seen God move and orchestrate and cause things to happen in like an active character, almost like this providential puppeteer, but God's never given voice. And in verse 4, we finally hear what God says. And God, almost like a counselor, responds, is it right for you to be angry? This was the first thing that God said. I think that's a good question. Is it right for you to be angry? Because sometimes the answer is yes. To be faithful as a Christian doesn't mean we are just bebopping through the world with this fake smile, saying everything is fine, everything is fine, like a, uh, a dysfunctional family with a mother in the kitchen just whisking a bowl, going everything's happy, everything's fine, you know. That's not what it means to be faithful in this world. Sometimes it is okay to be angry. We should be angry at injustices in this world and the oppressive ways that hold people back. But this anger, what we see in Jonah, this anger is, twist, is twisting him, is hardening his soul, his soul. And it put him at odds against the compassion and the mercy of God. Jonah chooses in the, in the, to not respond to God's question. Instead, he breaks off conversation with God, and God patiently, we see, God patiently will draw out a deeper question, a conversation for Jonah. Jonah cuts off conversation. He goes and he perches up on a hilltop to watch what will happen in Nineveh. Because who knows, maybe God will relent again and maybe destroy Nineveh. So he's sitting there waiting and hoping that all of a sudden fire and brimstone will be rained down from heaven. And while he is there, uh, God begins to provide several things. There's these series of events that take place, and it's all around this word, provided. 
Where else have we seen this word provided so far in the story? What's that? The fish, yeah. The fish was provided by God to move Jonah from where he was to where he was supposed to be, to be in proximity with his enemy, in proximity with God's desires. And so here we find other provisions. God continues to provide for Jonah. And first it was a plant to give him shade. Thanks, God. I know I need that plant. Thank you for the shade. But then God provides a worm to eat it. And then God provides a scorching wind to wither it away. And for the second time, Jonah says he is ready to die. He must have been a pacey redhead like myself who just doesn't do well in the sun because Jonah's having a moment. He's ready to get out of it. And then God says in verse 9 to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. I'm so angry I wish I was dead. It's a bit extreme, but he's having a moment, guys. And sadly, sadly, these are Jonah's last words. The last words that Jonah has in this book. So God provided all of these experiences to draw out something within Jonah, like good questions, like good provisions from God. All of this was to to draw out something within Jonah. We see here that Jonah was concerned about this plant, though he didn't create it, care for it, or cause it to grow. And then God asked the question, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that's the end. That's the end of the story. God provided Jonah with something that he would care about, though insignificant and temporal, so that God could ask, you want, you want to know what I care about? I care about the people of Nineveh. I care about all these animals and 120,000 people who were made in my image, who I created, who don't know their right hand from their left, but I made them and I cared, I care for them, each and every one. And that's the end of the story. It's an odd ending, right? It's like the experience of when you go to a movie and you're watching a film and all of a sudden the credits begin to scroll down. You're like, whoa, 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 wait, what happened? That's the end? I have a lot of questions here. Whatever happened to that character? What's going on here? And I kind of want my money back, you know. Uh, Anyone had that experience recently? But I think what's happening, the reason why whomever wrote Jonah did this is that we are left with a lot of questions. And perhaps that's what we need to sit with, is actually what's going to happen with Jonah? How will the people of Nineveh, will they actually be faithful and repentant? Perhaps that's the prophetic power in this book. It abruptly ends so that it becomes a mirror for you and I. Jonah's giving us, giving us this prophetic warning about the power of enemy hatred and how Jonah's bitterness leads to such a self-destructive end. This hatred didn't punish his enemies. It didn't cause things to get right. In the end, Jonah was the only one cursed by his hatred. And how does that mirror sit with you today? Where are you experiencing the weight of bitterness? Who is that enemy for you? Because I believe there's a bit of Jonah in each and every one of us. And maybe that's what this writing is getting at. Maybe it ends abruptly so that we can see that the story is not done. It continues in me, in you, and how we will respond. Will we allow enemy hatred to be in us? Will we make peace with bitterness? And especially as followers of Jesus... We even see it even more, more clearly called out as Jesus' words in Matthew 5. You've heard it 
You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying that our ability to rid ourselves of our bitterness and our hatred is how we take up our identity as children of God. To follow Jesus means that we have to learn to love our enemies, not to tolerate them, not to ignore them, but to love them as Jesus has called us to do. This is no easy task. I'm a visual person, so I I think visual illustrations are really helpful for me, and I I found one uh, recently that's just been staying with me for a couple weeks. Trappist monk and poet Thomas Merton, he talked about how our souls are like wax. When we give ourselves to God and to God's mercy, the wax of our souls become warm and malleable. This is helpful because when we are softened by God's love, the wax of our souls can receive God like a stamp pressed upon us. And we can take that seal of God's mercy and then we can go into the world reflecting our Savior. We can go in this world and be children of God like Jesus was just saying. But when we have become cold-hearted, when we have become bitter, when disdain becomes normative and we live in a tribal point of view and territorial, the wax within our souls become hardened. And not only can we not receive the imprint of God's love, but when that comes to us, the mercy of God grinds our bitter, brittle hearts. Merton wrote this. He said, Therefore, if you spend your life trying to escape from the heat of the fire that is meant to soften and prepare you to become your true self, the seal will fall upon you at last and crush you. You will not be able to take your your own true name and countenance, and you will be destroyed by the event that was meant to be your fulfillment. It sounds harsh. The grace and mercy of God sounds harsh. But we see here in this story how Jonah's brittle, hard heart was unprepared to receive the imprint of God's love and mercy. And his solution is not to open himself up, asking God to change him, asking God to overturn him. Instead, this warmth of grace and mercy passes him and he just wants to die. The event that God provided to be the overturning of Jonah's hard heart eventually crushes him. Do you see how this story teaches us that if we've made peace with hatred, the mercy of God feels crushing? There's a power to it. The mercy of God, it will destroy our tribalism and our bitterness. It uproots our obsession with boundaries and territories. It mocks the banners of us and them and all of the disdain that comes along with that. God might ask us, do you have any right to hold on to anger? Remember, this is the God of justice, but this is also the God who's slow to anger and eager to give mercy. Especially in our world today, we must hold on to these truths as we see violence and disdain spreading, as hatred is at work in our world, especially in the Middle East. God might ask us some of the same questions that God asked Jonah. Shouldn't I care about the 120,000 people of Nineveh who I have made and love? Shouldn't I care for the people of Gaza pinned underneath rubble? Should I not care about the 200 plus Israelis who are still being held captive and treated like a commodity to barter? 
Should I not care about the hospital workers in Gaza City who are watching infants die? All because they don't have energy and all while they're being used as human shields. Don't you know I cared for the loved ones of those who were lost in that terrible act of terrorism on October 7th? Don't you know that I care about them? Every single one of them whom I have made, I created and I nurtured and I love. In many ways, like right now, our watching world kind of feels like we're perched up on the hillside right alongside Jonah, just watching this event play out, maybe with our own desires, our own hopes, just watching it on this hillside removed from it all. I just want to tell you that God is not found on the hillside watching things happen from a distance. God is in the rubble with those who are trapped and waiting to be found. God is with the family members who don't know if they should mourn the person who's missing or hold out hope that they might return home. On October 7th, God was with the youth dancing in that concert just moments before the sound of assault rifles ended all too quickly. God was there and God is still there and the crucified Christ cares deeply. Both sides of this conflict, I'm no, like I'm a pastor, I'm no like Middle East expert, I have no clue how to deal with all this, but it just seems like to me, like both sides of this conflict have the goal of eradication of their enemy. And we know that goal will continue to enact an unimaginable violence and destruction for generations. And that goal of eradication is perfectly created to solidify the enemy-making machine and enemy hatred that will continue on and on and on. When our goal is to annihilate our enemy, we know that in the end, we will kill part of our humanity too. I know that God is a righteous God, full of anger. He has anger towards Hamas for the inexcusable violence on October 7th, and I think that we know that God mourns when bombs are dropped on innocent lives. It's what we see in the streets of Gaza today. God grieves any time we dehumanize people who are made in God's image. We don't have bounds or territories around who is made in God's image. But in our grief, we must ensure that we do not let our anger move us to become people like Jonah. I think as Jesus looks upon this world with all of our damnable hatred and violence, I just imagine Jesus saying the same words he said upon the cross. Father, forgive them. They, they have no clue what they are doing. But friends, we should know better. Jesus came so that we might know a different way, not equipped with disdain or bitterness or bombs or vengeance or captivity or hatred, but equipped with the very attributes that we find Jonah despising God for, to be gracious, compassionate, to be people who are slow to anger, who are bounding in love and willing to relent. I've been thinking personally of what it means for me to, like, just what does it mean to respond? What does it mean to seek to be a peacemaker in this world, not just to scroll through the reports and looking at the pictures of what's going on and feeling helpless? What is it, what possibly could we do? And then my thoughts recently were of the 50,000 plus students that are literally our neighbors, that are here in this neighborhood. Especially I've been thinking about the Jewish students and the Muslim students who are already living in a backdrop of pressure and anxiety, loneliness and depression. And then they experience this. 
Seeking to love our neighbor, I reached out on behalf of the Vine to the Shabbat Jewish Center and the Muslim Student Center, which literally exists within a block of each other here on West Campus, to offer our care. Just to say our church is around the corner, I can't imagine the weight of trying to care for your students in this time. And though we come from different religious traditions, I know that God cares for you and your students. What do you need? What do you need from us? How can we care for you? How can we support you? And this wasn't like this signal, some virtue thing, or have an alignment with one side or the other, or to get behind some sort of faction, but it's just in response to knowing a God of compassion who could care little about the factions that we obsess over. I did this because I believe that God might ask us, should I not care for these students? So I reached out to them. I heard from uh, Rabbi Johnson from the Shabbat Center. We're starting having dialogue and waiting. I'm hoping to hear back from someone from the Muslim Student Center. And I'll just see how we can support them and care for them. And rather than watching from the hillside or get sucked into the empty-making machine, just to try to love our neighbor. That seems, like, simple to me. So let me just end with a word of hope. Because in this story, Jonah looks like the dunce. He looks like the bitter one who missed it all. But I actually have hope for Jonah. It's not what we find in the story, but it's the fact that we have the story. I have a hunch that Jonah actually changed to some degree. And the reason why is because we know what happened, especially in chapter 4. Jonah had to tell somebody. His story didn't end on that hillside. God didn't answer his plea or his prayer to kill him. Jonah had to go home, and I think along the way, he had to tell people the story so that it would be spread verbally and written down one day. And he had to tell people, you know, guys, God doesn't belong to us. God cares for them too. The fact that we have this story recorded in Scripture means that Jonah eventually saw what God was trying to teach him and perhaps what God has provided for us too. You see, God provided for us to change, to be transformed, to be warmed by the the heat of his mercy, not only through this book, but also God has provided for us in Jesus what it means to love our enemy and in doing so also find our own salvation. As we draw close to the mercy of Jesus My prayer is that all the bitterness and all the tribal hatred could be burned from our souls and our hearts, warmed by the radiance of God's goodness and mercy, that it can form us and shape us to display what it means to be a child of God for the sake of this world, whom we know that God cares for and loves. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.